The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Now, this one's going to be a challenge to find, okay? It's in that group of minor prophets towards the back of the Old Testament. So I'll give you a little bit of time to find it. But this morning, we're going to begin a five-week series through this book of the Bible. And as soon as I say Jonah, I know a lot of us immediately begin thinking, well, I know that story. And often it's told and it's kind of treated as a kid's story, you know? It's one of those stories you hear when you're a child and it's an easy one for veggie tales. You know, they'll, I'm sure there's an episode there about it. But beneath all of the kiddie stuff that we put around this book of the Bible, there is profound truth. And what we see here is we see a prophet wrestling with the question of who is God and how does God relate to the world? How does God relate to people in the world? And I think that's a question that we're all asking all the time. And so we've subtitled this series, Navigating the Tension Between Justice and Mercy. Because that's the question that Jonah's wrestling with. And so this morning, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're going to see a man running from God. And hopefully by now you have found it. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we gather around your word and Lord, we want to know you. We are not studying an academic treatise. Lord, we are not here just to learn about something. Lord, we are here to know you. And we believe that we know you by your spirit through your word in your son Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would give us a sense of anticipation and expectation that we are about to hear the God of this universe speak to us, that we might know him, that we might know you. Lord, we pray all of this, we ask you to do all of this in the name of your Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I teach middle school, and often before my math class, I will read a psalm. And I have kind of a system. You know, there's 150 psalms, and that's div divisible by 30. This is a math class after all. 
And so I figured that that allows me five separate times to read through the Psalms in a given year. And so what I usually do is depending on what day of the month it is. And so, you know, if it's the 16th day of the month, I may read Psalm 16, or I may add 30 or 60 or 90 to that or, or 120. No, I don't know. It's somewhere right there. See, why am I teaching math at all? But that's my system. And here's the deal with my system. My system doesn't really allow for a lot of choice. I am going to read the psalm assigned on that day no matter what. That's kind of the plan. All of God's word is profitable for teaching. I've got a classroom full of sixth graders. Whatever's there, they need to be ready to hear. And every now and then, I'll come upon a passage in the psalms like this. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him who you, whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Fifth graders, let us now pray. And you can imagine the wide-eyed stares that I see looking back at me, wanting me to explain how that's even in the Bible. Maybe you're wondering that. It can be tense moments. These are uncomfortable moments. I mean, how do you reconcile that with Jesus saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those, forgive them, Forgive your enemies. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye, but I am telling you no, no, no more. How do we reconcile these things? And so one of our strategies is that often we just sort of go, well, that's in the Old Testament. You know, that's easy. That's in the Old Testament. I don't have to worry about that. It's, it's there. It's back there. Jesus has come. He's changed all that. We don't do that anymore. That's back then. Now we're in the New Testament. Well, the problem with that is in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, there's a similar prayer. By the way, church, Revelation is in the New Testament. And there in the New Testament, martyrs are asking God to avenge their blood. Those who have been killed for their testimony in Jesus Christ. You know, the reality is, God is a God of justice. He will punish wrongdoing. He will punish every wrongdoing. There is no wrongdoing that will go unpunished. All will be made right, and that is supposed to be a comforting truth to us. But at the same time, our God is a God of mercy. He will forgive. He will show grace. And we look no further than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ to see the fullness of his mercy on display. And we live in that tension. You know, I've shared this story before, but this always comes to mind when I talk about this subject. Um, Nikki and her dad memorized Psalm 139 together 
Uh, and, and they did that because Nikki, when she was in high school, uh, had to undergo open heart surgery. And so t- together in preparation for a very scary thing, they memorized Psalm 139, which is a beautiful psalm. I mean, here are just some of the quotes from Psalm 139. You know me. Where shall I go from your spirit? You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In your book was written for me. And it talks about how everything is, is in your plan. All the days of my life were written in your book before they came to pass. And so, naturally, on Nikki's senior night at her senior soccer game, her dad asked the person who, who reads and, and says the prepared statements to read Psalm 139. Well, Nikki's dad didn't tell him that there were any limits to that reading. Read all of Psalm 139. And so he read through all of that and here we are in this open field at the halftime of a soccer game with Nikki and her dad standing out there, and he just kept on reading. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Do I not hate those who hate you? We don't know what to do with that. But it's here in our Bibles. So we need to figure out what to do with it. And for the longest time as a Christian, to be honest with you, I did not know what to do with that. And I remember the very first time I experienced the urge to turn to one of these psalms and pray it. And it was when I had seen ISIS images, videos of ISIS killing publicly innocent Christians, parading them in front of cameras and boasting of their wickedness and their power and putting them to death for no other reason but because they are followers of Jesus Christ and witnesses to Him. We desire for things to be made right. When innocent children are gunned down in schools, we ought to want that to be rectified, for that to be made right, for justice to come. We live in this tension between justice and mercy. This is not an abstract question. And it is this tension that is at the heart of the book of Jonah. That's what Jonah is all about. Is God a merciful God? Is God a just God? Jonah wants God to be one way, and God keeps showing himself to be another way. And ultimately, the answer is yes. He's all of these things. He is just. He is merciful. We see it fundamentally, and we're going to get to this. We see it in the cross of Jesus Christ, but it's worth exploring this question. You know, most of us, if we're really honest, are overly eager to accept God's mercy, especially when it applies to us. However, we are often slower to apply God's mercy when it comes to the wickedness and sins of someone else. You know, when you get pulled over for, your, for speeding through the neighborhood, you look at the officer and say, oh, officer, please, I, I wasn't paying attention. Please show mercy. But when that teenager flies by your house, you're saying, I sure hope they get him. You know, and that's the way most of us live. This tension is not new. Jonah gives us a deep exploration of who God is and this question of human struggling with that question. 
And so the first thing I want us to see this morning in the first two verses is we want to look at God, and specifically, we want to look at the God who calls us to hard things. The God who calls us to hard things, verses 1 and 2 of Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and this is significant. Because as soon as we see the word of the Lord came to Jonah, we know that this is a specific kind of book. It is a prophetic book. This is the prophetic formula. God, throughout history, has raised up human beings to be his prophets, to be his mouthpiece to the world. He gives them his word, and they are charged to turn around and speak his word to the world. Well, Jonah was just such a person. He was a prophet. However, if you're familiar with the other prophetic books, you will know that the book of Jonah is not typical. Most of the prophetic books are mainly those oracles that God has given. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and then Isaiah records exactly what God told him. And maybe there's a little bit of narrative in between Maybe there's some story in there to kind of put it in context, but Jonah's different. Jonah's nothing but a narrative. It is a story about a prophet, about a specific prophet, about a prophet that honestly we don't know a whole lot about. Who was Jonah? Well, I'll tell you what we know. 2 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 23 through 25, you don't need to turn there. We read this, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. And that's it. That's what we know about Jonah besides the book of Jonah. We know that he served as a prophet under the administration of a wicked king in the northern kingdoms in Israel, a king named Jeroboam who reigned for 41 years. But we do know about Jeroboam. And we know that Jeroboam was a nationalistic king. What does that mean? It meant that Jeroboam ran on a slogan of make Israel great again. Does that give you some context for the type of king Jeroboam was? He had an Israel first agenda. He wanted to expand the borders. He wanted to acquire more land. Outsiders would not have been welcome in the kingdom during Jeroboam's reign. Say no to immigration, build the wall. That's Jeroboam. And that is who Jonah served as a prophet under. Jonah was most likely intensely patriotic, we may even say nationalistic, 
because those are not the same things. That's another conversation. But God gives him a call. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now this is interesting, because we read all the prophetic literature, and we study all the lives of the prophets, and when God gives a prophet a call, the call is always to God's people. Isaiah, go to my people. And they may have small oracles here and there to the nations, but they're never called to go to the nations. They're never called to transplant their lives and go to these wicked nations. Jonah, I'm sure, saw himself as a servant to God's people. And where has God called him? He has called him to go to Nineveh the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians, in case you don't know much about biblical history, let me just explain them to you a little bit. Wicked, brutal, violent. Taking over. They had been used by God to chasten Israel for Israel's idolatry and rebellion. They were the enemies of God's people. We, we know how wicked they are because some of their art survives and has been found. Even in their art, they depict their brutality. They would dismember people. They would cut their arms and legs off. They would parade people's relatives through the streets with the heads of their relatives on a pole. They would enslave anyone that they found useful and they would kill everyone else. If you want a little bit of context, imagine God calling a Jewish prophet to Berlin in 1941. Imagine, because that is what this call would have sounded like to Jonah. So you can understand his hesitancy. You can understand his response you can understand him going in the complete opposite direction. Are you kidding me? This was not on Jonah's bucket list. This was not a career goal that Jonah had set out to do. And, and the call, well, you read it and you say, well, but he's telling them to go call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Why wouldn't Jonah want to do that? Why wouldn't Jonah want to go and tell them how evil they are? And you need to understand something about the way God works, church. Every prophet would have understood this. To go and call out against them would have been to warn them of God's wrath. And to warn them of God's wrath implies the opportunity for them to repent and receive God's mercy. Do you understand that? I don't think we do, by the way, in our, in our culture. Because we live in this culture where it's like, if you say something negative to me, it's harmful it's traumatic. You should never say anything negative to me. But in the Bible, saying something negative to someone is a mercy. It is a warning. You say to someone, hey, you're on a path towards destruction. That is not mean. That is not vindictive. You have to speak truth to people in order to shine the light of mercy to people, in order to give people the opportunity to change. Jonah understands that. 
He understands that if God is sending him to Nineveh to call out judgment, that there is also embedded in that justice the opportunity for mercy. And Jonah doesn't want to go. There's a lot of things we could deal with right now, but I want to focus on one little point for us this morning. And I want to talk about what it means to have a God who calls his people to do difficult things. Church, do you understand that we have a God who calls us to do hard things? That this is normal. We, we, just a few weeks ago in our Easter series, we studied per, perhaps one of the, the ultimate examples of that. Abraham being called to sacrifice his son. God was testing him and God tests us. He calls us out of our comfort zone. He calls us out of our securities. He calls us to take risks. He calls us to do things that don't make sense to the rest of the world. He calls us all the time to do things like this. Listen, if you are a Christian here today, and you are a follower of of Christ, and you have never been called by God out of your comfort zone, then you must re-examine whether you're really listening. Because this is what God does. We have a hard time believing this because we have a worldview increasingly gaining steam in our nation, in our culture, that says anything that violates my feelings is a violation of me as a person. We don't like the idea of anyone calling us to do something that doesn't feel natural to us, that doesn't feel like something we would normally want to do. And just to be honest with you, I see this in parenting today all the time. We have a generation of parents who are hesitant to violate the wills of their three-year-olds. I'm not kidding. Parents who apologize to tell their child simply what to do. To speak a word of authority. To say... I don't have to explain this to you. I'm your dad. You're going to do it because I am the authority in your life, period. And, and the, why am I bringing that up? Because listen, when we, when we turn into a culture that can't tell our children what to do on the basis of, of authority, then how are we going to respond when God authoritatively tells us to do something we don't understand? How are our children going to make sense of a God who is king, who speaks authoritatively to us, who sometimes says to us, I want you to do this, and I'm not going to tell you why. I want you to do this because I said so, period. I used to hate it when my parents said that to me. Didn't you? Why, Dad? Because I said so, son. And then I became a dad. And I began to realize that that is the best answer. It is the best answer because the answer implies you don't need to know the reasons why. You are not mature enough yet to understand it. You need to do it based upon your trust in me as the authority that God has placed in your life. 
You're not always going to understand everything. But not all authority is meant to hurt us or harm us. Authority, especially the authority of God, is for our good. The I and because I told you so, who that is speaking that is really important. When it's God saying, because I told you so, church, that's got to be enough. It wasn't enough for Jonah. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't believe that there would be any good reasons to go to Nineveh. There are two confusions that exist in the church today that I believe are everywhere. I think the first one is that we don't understand authority. We have a democracy in America. So when we start reading about Lord and King and kingdom on all this language in our Bibles, we usually don't really know what to do with it. We've never existed in a monarchy. We've never had a king. We don't know what it means to obey someone who has absolute authority over our lives. Our preferred management style in these United States of America is management. We expect our leaders to manage things so that life is smooth and I can do pretty much what I want. We kind of expect that from government. What is government supposed to do for us? Government is to make sure everything's running efficiently, conveniently. Government is supposed to secure our freedoms so that we can kind of live our lives how we want, as long as we don't go too far out of lines. Well, church, God isn't a manager. That's not the way God is. When, when we're baptized, we're not baptized on the profession, Jesus is manager of my life. Jesus isn't our co-pilot. Jesus isn't our buddy. Jesus is Lord. Now, what's great is that he is a benevolent Lord. What's great is that he's a king who gives himself and sacrifice for his people. What's great is that he shows us what real authority is supposed to look like. Authority that's willing to lay down his life for his people. But at the end of the day, with all of that understood, he is still the king, which means that he is sovereign, which means that when he gives us a command, we have to believe that obedience to that command is what is best for us. He knows better than we do what is best for us. He tells us what to do. And we are supposed to joyfully understand that that's a good thing. We don't get to tell Jesus how to counsel and direct us. He speaks, we respond. That's what faith is. That's what trust is. That's embedded in the reality of the gospel. But here's the second misunderstanding. We also don't understand obedience. We think that resonance is the same thing as obedience. And so we read our Bibles and we hear these calls to forgive people. And we go, yeah, but you don't understand what they did to me. 
Now, no one's going no to contradict that. We all want to resonate with that. Why? Of course, we're supposed to forgive. We resonate with these things. We resonate with these hard teachings. Of course, we're supposed to love our neighbor. Of course, we're supposed to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Of course, we're supposed to take the gospel to the nations. We resonate with that. We agree with that. But the problem is that God doesn't call us to resonate with that. He calls us to obey it. He calls us to act. He calls us to live in obedience to the greatest king, the most loving king, and to do that joyfully. Jonah's having a hard time understanding that here. And that's okay. We do too. And it's okay because thankfully we have a God who is patient with us. A God who may even use our study of the book of Jonah to course correct for us. To show us where we're going wrong in our thoughts about God. That's my prayer. And help us see that there's a better way. But here's the the second thing that I want us to see in this passage. In verse 3, the person who runs from God's call. You see the contrast in verse 3. The call is clear. Arise, go to Nineveh. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. You think Jonah said, well, God, I did half of what you said. You said to, to rise. I rose. But he goes in the opposite direction. He flees to Tarshish. And so for you to get a little understanding of geography here, he goes in the complete opposite direction. Right? If, if heads is Carolina and tails is California, okay, God is telling Jonah, go to Carolina, and Jonah buys a one-way ticket to California. So, so that's where we are right here. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's repeated. That's really important. Jonah thinks he's running away from God. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Here's where he buys the one-way ticket. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It's really interesting. It kind of makes sense, though, for this prophet. He had probably not been even out of Israel very many times in his life, if at all. All of his encounters with God would have been in the context of God's dealings with his people in the temple. He would have received prophetic words from God in Israel. So in Jonah's mind, if he escapes, if he goes to a faraway land, he can run away and God won't be able to find him anymore. We know the futility of this. But in his mind, it makes intuitive sense. I don't want to do it. I don't want to hear God tell me to do it anymore. I need to run. I need to run as far away as I can. Well, church, as a pastor, and Josh would tell you the same, this still happens all the time. to avoid the implications of what God is calling people to do, people often seek to run. To avoid the situations where they may have to be confronted with the truth of God's Word. To avoid the people who are telling them the truth. To avoid the context where truth will confront them. This is often the reason why people search for a new church. 
Not always, but it's often the reason why. It can often be the reason why someone goes from church to church to church because at every turn they're looking for someone to tell them what they want to hear. But that's not the way it works. God's truth speaks to us all and it confronts us where we are. And that hurts sometimes, it stings. Why does Jonah run? Well, the answer to that question, if you really want to understand the psychology of what's going on inside Jonah's heart, just ask yourself the same question. Why do I run? Why do I avoid? Why do I go elsewhere? Why do I avoid people? You see, on the surface, and this is where it gets a little deeper, on the surface, it seems that the reason why Jonah is running is because Jonah doesn't want to obey, because Jonah would rather do what Jonah wants to do over what God wants Jonah to do, and that's true. That is the surface explanation for what's happening. But underneath, there's a more fundamental problem going on. And it's not just that Jonah doesn't want to obey. At issue here is that Jonah does not trust God. That's the problem. And church, I need you to know that our problems obeying God are fundamentally always problems trusting God first. At the end of the day, that's what was going on in the garden. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where, where God had given Adam and Eve specific instruction in how does the serpent tempt them. He undermines the character of God. He says, God is just trying to withhold something good from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to see the way he sees. And, and they believe that lie. When we don't trust God, we don't obey God's word. Author Tim Keller, and you're going to hear his name through this study because he wrote a wonderful book on this book of the Bible. On this point, he writes, Jonah concluded that because he could not see any good reasons for God's command, there couldn't be any. How many times have we concluded that as well? I don't see any good reason for you to tell me to do this, God. Therefore, there must not be any good reason for you to tell me to do this. I don't see any good reason why I need to go reconcile to that person who was mean to me, who said harsh things to me. Therefore, there must not be any good reason for me to reconcile with them. At the end of the day... God saying, because I said so, has to be enough. But often that's not enough because we doubt whether God really knows what he's doing. We doubt whether God's really able to make it all work out the way he says he will. We doubt whether God really has the best of intentions for us. And specifically here, and this is a theme that we are going to explore so much more in depth in the future weeks. Specifically here, Jonah doesn't trust God to properly administer mercy. This is a huge theme. 
And what we're going to find out is that when we don't fully understand the depths of our own sin and our own desperate need for mercy, we will hesitate when God begins to extend the invitation of mercy to other people. It all starts here. It all starts with our own grasp of the gospel. When we understand, church, that we are desperately wicked, that there is none good, no, not one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that includes us. When we're able to say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners, it is only then that we fully recognize our desperate need of mercy. And it is only then that we will turn to our neighbor and say, you're bad, but I'm just as bad. In fact, I think I'm worse. A lot of us look at a passage like this and we're sitting in our church seats and we go, well, I'm not running. Look, I'm here. I'm at church. I'm not running from God. And I would just encourage you to ask yourself or to, to consider that there's more than one way to run. There's subtle ways of running. And one of the subtle ways that is often found in the church is we simply excuse ourselves from clear commands because we reason that it doesn't apply to us because of our specific circumstances or our specific situation that we're in. I'm not going to be the one to do that because look at me. Look at my life right now. I'm not in condition to do that. That can't apply to me. And granted, there are times where we're in circumstances or maybe our obedience doesn't look exactly like the people around us. I don't want to discount that. But I want us to search our hearts as we seek to know God alongside Jonah. Our response to God's hard calls reveals a lot about ourselves. Sometimes it reveals whether we're using God or worshiping God. You know, a lot of us like God around. We like the idea of God as long as it's convenient, as long as I can see how it's benefiting me. But as soon as it, I can't do a cost-benefit analysis on it, and God tells me to do something that's going to cost me, well, well, I leave him, to, I push him to the side then. Church, there is a difference between using God and worshiping God. The posture of worship before God says, God, I am going to obey you no matter what it costs me because of the glory of, what, of your love that you've shown for me in Jesus Christ. This question also reveals whether we're trusting God or whether we're trusting something else. And a lot of us, the battle here is that we're trusting our own wisdom. I can't see what you're doing, therefore I'm not going to obey Rather than, I am going to trust you, even though I might not be able to see it right now, because of your track record, because of your promises, because of who you are, because of what you've done for me in Christ. Well, Jonah is about to find out who this God is. My prayer, church, is that as we study Jonah together, we would find out too. Let's pray together.